You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. There it is. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See the sharp contrast? He's drawing a sharp contrast. The merchants said, we're going to travel, we're going to do business, we're going to spend a year, we're going to make profits. Those are the same ones who don't even know what their life will be like tomorrow. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden you hear the telltale sign of a flat tire. Thankfully, you have a spare. You get it changed, but once back on the road, you hear the sound again and you've got another flat. It's at this point you probably realize that things aren't going according to your plan for the day. Pastor Tom will share that sometimes even the best laid plans don't work out and it can be frustrating. He'll be looking at the book of James and discussing how and how not to make our plans. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 4 as he begins his message, The Pride of Presumptuous Planning. I am just like many of you, I use a planner. I like to plan. Truthfully, I used to like the plan a lot more than I like the plan now because a lot of the plans that I planned really didn't happen. So I'm not as enthusiastic about planning as I used to. I used to have every 15 minutes of my life covered, but uh, no more. But I have uh, meetings, deadlines, things like that, just like you. I use an electronic planner now. It syncs with my laptop. I like that. I use the Reminders app. That, that's nice. I ignore the reminders when they come up, but it's nice that it attempts to remind me. You know, really, we spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Have you ever, ever thought about that, how much time we spend thinking about the future? Right now, some of you are thinking about this afternoon, what you need to do tomorrow, next week, next month. And maybe some of you are diehards, you have the five or ten year plan going. Pretty sure it won't work out for you. Things change. The Bible has a lot to say about planning. Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 15.22, without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Get a lot of wisdom before you make your plans. God plans. Jeremiah 29.11, God said this to Israel, I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you future and a hope. You see that on plaques a lot. Many scriptures encourage us to look at the future and think through how our actions now will either be rewarded or lead to trouble. Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man sows, this he will what? He'll also reap. Isaiah 32, 8, the noble man devises noble plans. And by noble plans, he stands. There's also scriptures, though, that speak of the futility of planning. Psalm 33.10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. God likes frustrating some people's plans. That's what I get from that verse. In some cases, planning is proud. More particularly, it's presumptuous. That's what James chapter 4 is bringing to light, if you'll open there. Uh, as needed as planning is, there is a latent danger in it. 
a danger that can cause us frustration and maybe even some heartache at times. Planning is not always an exercise in prudence. Sometimes it's the product of pride and presumption. Goliath, I'm sure, had very confident plans that he was going to take the little boy with the sling in his hands out. The Lord frustrated his plans. Uh, he was an evil man. We would expect the Lord to do that. But David had plans. He wanted to build a house for the Lord, remember? But God said, what? No, his son Solomon would do it. So our plans, no matter how thoughtful, no matter how grand, are subject to change. That can be very, very frustrating. But it doesn't have to be frustrating if we're looking at it correctly. God's interruptions into the plans of men actually works out for our better. They're indeed meant to be, as Pastor Tony often says, providential. God interrupted whatever plans that Abram had for his life when he was living in Ur and said, get up, leave your father's house, your relatives, and go to the land which I will promise to you. And aren't we all glad that God interrupted Abram's plans? The Spirit of God prevented the Apostle Paul from going into the Asian province. Instead, on his second missionary journey, he went to a place called Philippi. And you know what happened there. And then Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and on. Now, James chapter 4 has some very helpful instruction, I think, for us. Instruction that helps us put our planning into proper perspective. Reduce our frustration. A lot of the anger we have in life comes from frustration. And frustration comes from unfulfilled desires and plans. And so, again, a very practical passage, if you get behind your anger, sometimes some of you have anger, you're trying to control your anger, you need to look back to frustration. Then you look back behind frustration, you'll find expectations and plans that aren't working out. And so this will help you in that area as well. In some ways, what we're about to read is complementary truth, kind of looking at it from a different angle, from the very famous Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, right? In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will what? He'll direct your paths. I'm sure you've seen a, a two-year-old uh, in daddy's arms, snatched up off of the playground, kicking and screaming uh, legs, wanting to play a little longer, but daddy has other plans for the child. We're going to go in, we're going to get some lunch, we're going to get cleaned up, we're going to take a nap, and then we can come back out and play. We're a lot like uh, that two-year-old in daddy's arms sometimes, kicking and screaming about life, getting all angry and frustrated. If we just would give God a little bit of room and time to work through what he's doing in our life, we'd see he's molding us into his holiness and his, uh, the likeness of his son. And so he needs to do some of these things in our lives. And if we would be more compliant, more waiting on what he's doing, we'd really have a lot, lot better time. The child will get to play, just needs to calm down a little bit. Uh, the father's not ruining his fun, he's setting up more joy for his life. So too in James 4, we see that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in this entire chapter, is correcting some wrong attitudes. We've already been looking at that. One of the wrong attitudes is worldliness, right? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? That's the very strong uh, rebuke he gave in verse 4. On to verse 6, he talks about God as opposed to the proud, but gives that enabling grace to those who are humble. If we want to see progress in our Christian lives, if we want to see progress in areas we haven't before, we've been given the key already. The key is humility. We just don't want to use the key because we don't like being humbled. But if we would, we'd see so much progress. What a great and practical chapter. 
dealing with our pride. And I throw myself in there, our pride. When we looked at verses 11 and 12, it was really the same thing. We should not speak against our brothers. We should not evaluate them or judge them without gathering enough evidence. If you gather partial evidence about someone and come to a conclusion about that, that's really wrong judging. We need to really take time and understand people and never speak against them, certainly never slander them. And we do that often because we're trying to elevate ourselves. Well, the subject of pride has not really left the text here when we come to verses 13 through 17. So let's read it together, and we're going to look at pride in planning. It's kind of a humorous section, I think, but again, a very instructive one. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, verse 14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So we're looking at the sin of presumption and uh, its counterpart, human arrogance. Presumption is a product of pride. James wants to humble our pride. So that's what he's doing here. I'm going to kind of outline it this way. He's attempting to humble our pride in five stages. So we have to go through these stages with him. Verse 13 is the first stage. He, he pictures presumptuous planning. And then in verse 14, he uh, reveals the presumption. In uh, verse 15, he provides proper thinking, proper words in our mouth, the proper perspective. In verse 16, the pride is rebuked. In verse 17, there's the principle of humility that is provided for us to live by. We'll just take that first stage first. Presumptuous planning is pictured. Verse 13. Let's read that again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. What do you see here? What do you picture when you uh, read these words? I think what James is picturing is some small group of eager, confident Jewish businessmen, first century businessmen. We might picture them inside. They're all gathered at a wooden table, let's say. They have a Greco-Roman map laid out before them, and they're discussing their plans. They're thinking about things. Maybe it's mid-morning. Maybe the sun is streaming in through the window. Enthusiastically, they talk with one another. They lean over the map. They point to different locations. They stroke their nice Jewish beards. They debate the best course of action for their joint venture, their cooperative business. They're familiar with it. These are experienced businessmen. Various ports and cities around the Mediterranean are, are discussed. All of them seem like they have some prospect, some maybe better than others. All of the latest rumors and the news of the region are reported to one another, word about how things are going with their various contacts they had from the previous summer. That all, that all is discussed and exchanged. As they debate, finally they pinpoint a certain city on the map. And they come to an agreement. That's the city they're going to travel to this year. That's where they're going to do business. That's where they're going to make a profit. They're going to sell. They're going to trade. They have quality goods. Everyone likes the idea. 
All around the table, heads began to bob and nod with one another as they look at one another. Voices of approval reverberate throughout the room. They're satisfied. Maybe they lean back in their chairs. The discussion has kind of ended. They're looking in each other's eyes with that optimism that businessmen have. Smiles gently settle across their faces. Prospects look really good. I mean, really good. Travel in those days was made very easy by the Roman roads. There shouldn't be any problem if they needed to use them. But travel by ship was always uh, less expensive and was faster and easier. Roman traders went all the way to uh, Gaul, even to Britain, uh, to the north, all the way to India, to the east. Rome was a vast empire with many, many options for selling and trading. It was a great, great uh, time in the Roman Empire to be involved in business. And really, it was the right season for traveling, too. Winter had passed. All the storms that were generated across the Mediterranean were gone. Sailing was much less dangerous in this kind of a climate. And the city that they selected was well known for its demand for the goods that they were selling. They had plenty to supply them with. They had done their work. They had their inventory. The Pax Romana was also uh, prevailing in the time, all the way since Caesar Augustus. It provided a peaceful climate for all trade. That's called the Peace of Rome, and it, it was a great climate for economic boom. They liked that, and they wanted to benefit from it. They enjoyed it. And of course, let us not forget, the Jews were well known for their business, prowess, we might say. Wherever they clustered together in the diaspora where they settled throughout the world, they seemed to always do pretty well economically just like they're still doing today. They tended to do well, and uh, it was the same back then. These are bright prospects for these men. Things look good. They decided, you know, we ought to get at it. Maybe we'll leave later today. Maybe we'll wait until the morning to get an early start. No sense wasting time. Prophet was awaiting. Now, as they continued talking, maybe one of their wives walked into the room to serve them some drinks, and she hears of the news, and so she's bringing in something, uh, a drink to celebrate with. She shares in their joy. She takes the news of their grandiose plans back into the next room where the women were gathered, and uh, they're excited about the plans, too. They know how hard their husbands have worked, or maybe there's a brother or a father in the room as well. They work hard. They prepare their goods for sale. They were thoughtful men. They developed the business. It's what they'd really worked their whole lives for, and their families really depended on these sales. By the way, from archaeological digs and uh, ships that were shipwrecked and have been uh, surveyed and looked at, even some of the writings, we know that Rome's commercial business was varied and was abundant and was actually quite sophisticated. The more the empire grew, the more sophisticated the economy became. Perhaps these men made and sold tents for a living. Maybe they were garments hides or leather, maybe metalwork, tin or copper, wine, oil, or cereals. All these things were traded. The state always got its little share of the profits as well. Every time you went into a new province, yes, there was a tax to pay. You wanted to set up in a marketplace, there'd be someone else there that would carve out their little chunk. But they had already factored all of those costs into their whole profit-making venture. Sure, once in a while they whispered a little note, you know, to one another about how much government overreach there was and that they took too much of the profits, but they were good businessmen and they'd factored all of this in. Whatever the challenges were, whatever their produce was, the prospect of making a profit from the work of their own hands, well, that was satisfying, very exciting to say the least. God is said to work with his hands and accomplish things. They knew the scriptures, they worked with their hands and accomplished things as well, just like many of you do. The more they dreamed about this business venture, the more confident they became 
the more eager they were to get started. Verse 13 reveals the confidence. As you read it, understand there's a lot of confidence in this. We shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That's a lot of, a lot of plans. Why wouldn't they think this? Their travel plans were sound. The accommodations along the route were well known. They'd used them before. They knew that their provisions would last. Beasts of burden, if they were used, would serve them well. Again, an economic climate that was favorable to this. They had no reason not to think that they would be able to get there and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. The laws of supply and demand were at work. It was simple business 101. Experience told them things ought to go pretty smoothly. There were no hiccups. Now, we can hardly fault them for hard work. We can hardly fault them for making careful calculations and wanting to make a profit, can we? Nothing in the text condemns business. There's nothing in this Bible text that says, you know, businessmen are bad or capitalism is wrong. Don't read your Bible incorrectly. In fact, if we were to broaden out to the collective wisdom of Scripture, we would easily see the Scriptures repeatedly tell that hardworking men and women, they deserve receiving the fruit of their hands. The laborer is worthy of his or her wages. That's what the Scripture says. Jacob was a successful herder and businessman, and he got to benefit from the riches of his hand, a little bit of divine help in his case. Joseph's careful plans saved Egypt from starvation. That's why God sent him to Egypt in the first place. The Proverbs 31 woman is very enterprising and developed a lot of wealth for her family. Capitalism is not only not condemned in Scripture, it's always presented as the way to make wealth if one is honest and works hard. It's the way to make money. It's the way to provide for the home. It's a way to generate jobs and give jobs for other people. God's arrangement in Israel through the laws that he gave was really a capitalistic system that also cared for the poor. It didn't have free handouts. Some of our national leaders are saying that that's the, uh, that's the solution for poverty is to give handouts. That's never a good solution. Handouts for doing nothing or nearly doing nothing don't do anybody any good. To sustain people for the long haul, they need to be able to provide for themselves. They need an education. They need a skill to work for themselves. They need to bring home their own paycheck. And then when they have that paycheck, make a contribution also back to society. That's the system that God has ordained even in this fallen world. Alert businessmen know about this. They are able to put their finger up and figure out which way the wind is blowing, economically speaking. They have a nose for business, and then they find their little niche, and they go after it, and they make some money. They often maximize profits. Money is not evil, and making money is not evil. The only thing related to money we're told that is evil is the love of money, right? The love of money. So James is not correcting businessmen. He's not frowning on hard work. However, James is not so pleased with these businessmen and their self-assurance, their self-assurance. Rather than joining them in all the backslapping they must have been doing or their mug-clanging, their outbursts of laughter, this annoying pastor, talking about James, not me, <laughs> suddenly puts an end to all of their premature celebrations. He interrupts their gleeful planning session with that rousing address in verse 13. Come now. That's a discordant note. 
Come now, you who say these things. Now, when you read the Bible, especially when you're reading it out loud, you need to recognize when there's a little bit of emotion that's inside the text. And here's where you'll have it. And you should read it that way when it has emotion. These are words of sharp disapproval. Uh, These are a direct challenge to a blind spot that they collectively had. This address is meant to shake these merchants from their self-confidence and prepare them for some rethinking. That's what pastors are supposed to do. After all, they are there often to disagree with you and your plans. They're there to get you to look at your life and your home and your situation and your work a little bit differently, give you a different perspective, inject something maybe that you haven't been thinking about. And by now, I'm confident that you all know that James was not shy at all about making corrections. He's been doing it through the whole letter. True, we are not supposed to judge our brothers wrongly. We're not supposed to tear them down, even with the use of truth. But that doesn't mean we don't correct them when all the facts are known. Then the correction is given with kindness and it's beneficial. I wonder really, as they were reading this, I wonder what kind of reaction these these merchants would have had when this was first read, maybe as they were listening in the synagogue, and they, they listened to these words as the reader read them. Would they have received this correction right away? I doubt it. Receiving correction is hard sometimes. We always search for what we did that's right, not what we did that was wrong, to try to reassure ourselves. Would they have said, you know what, we deserve this rebuke. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. You can keep hitting a fool and hitting a fool and he doesn't learn anything. But a man of understanding gets corrected even a little bit and he he receives that and he benefits from it. I think they might have struggled with this correction at first. That's just my guess. Maybe they were thinking, What is this fellow so bent out of shape for? What are we doing that's so bad and wrong? What is wrong with hard work, making a profit, supporting our families? Why doesn't he pick on some other profession? Why is he putting ours in the text and correcting us as businessmen? Well, rest assured, James was about to tell them what was wrong, and he spared no words at all. And that leads us to the second stage of their humbling, and that is the presumption is revealed. Look again at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. There it is. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See the sharp contrast? He's drawing a sharp contrast. The merchants said, we're going to travel, we're going to do business, we're going to spend a year, we're going to make profits. Those are the same ones who don't even know what their life will be like tomorrow. Picture that, because that's where all the presumption is. That's where the problem is in this text. That's really the bullseye that he wants us to learn not just as businessmen, but just as Christians. The ones who are confidently talking about the future are the same ones who don't know anything at all about the future. That's a problem. That's presumption. To talk the way they were talking was a boast. Now, we mentioned in the last section that the, one of the things that people are most proud about are their opinions, particularly their opinions of other people. Well, another one high on the list is our ability to uh, make plans come true. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I can't wait for this to happen because then I'm going to get to do dot, dot, dot. People talk all the time about things they're going to do in the future. Next year, I'm going to do such and such. You're going to see. I can't wait till next month. I'm going to start such and such. All the time. People talk about all kinds of things. 
but what control do they really have? Big talk, little to back up the talk. Would you agree? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow. Why not? Why not? For you do not know what a day may bring forth. You may have heard some sayings like, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Or if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. But Pastor Tom has been so clear that God is the one that is in control of our days, and even our best laid plans may come to nothing if they don't align with God's plans. Once again, our pride comes to the forefront when we recognize how often we place our confidence in ourselves. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Do you trust God with everything? Pastor Tom will ask us if we're willing to trust God's sovereignty when it comes to our lives. If we believe in a sovereign God, it'll be evident in all we do and all we say. If things don't go according to our plans, what will our reaction tell others about our beliefs? We'll see how things could turn out differently and for our ultimate benefit when we lean not on our own understanding. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.